morning here in Hebrews. Very strange passage of scripture about the priesthood of Melchizedek. All along, the writer to the Hebrews has been talking about how Jesus is better than Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than Abraham. He's better. He's a better covenant. He's better than the old priesthood. And now he revisits this concept of Jesus being a better priest, Jesus being a better kind of priest. And again, making assumptions that his audience has a a good awareness of how the Old Testament fit together and how it worked. He makes the point along the way that Jesus is a priest But he's not of the line of Levi. And that's where the priests come from. They're Levitical. But Jesus is from the line of Judah. And from the line of Judah, you get kings, not priests. And so how is it that Jesus can be a priest if he's not from the line of Levi? And he begins to address that with the story of Melchizedek. And so the first question that we need to ask this morning is, who was Melchizedek? We're going to go back to the Old Testament for a couple of passages. So if you don't mind, flip back to Genesis chapter 14, Genesis chapter 14, and our main text will be verse 18 through verses 18 through 20. But Genesis 14 is a story of Abraham going um, the kings of Sodom, kings of Gomorrah. Other kings were involved in this had come. They had taken some captors, one of which was Lot, Abraham's nephew. A war broke out. Abraham led some other kings in a battle. They were victorious. They overthrew those people. They got the captors back. And so they're, they're marching away in victory. And then out comes in verse 18. It says, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. No reference to genealogy. No reference to his family line. No reference that he was even of the supposed... Hebrew nation, which he would not have been able to because that nation is going to come from Abraham and doesn't exist yet. So clearly not of that lineage. So there's no tribe of Levi. There's no tribe of Judah completely independent of all of those things because the nation of Israel is still in the body of Abraham. The child of promise has not been born yet. And so none of these things have taken place. But this person was a king and this person was a priest of the most high God. And he comes out and he it says he blessed him and he said to him, blessed be Abram. Of God most high, who is possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave a tenth of all. Other than a reference to Melchizedek, which we'll look at in a minute in Psalm 110. This is all that the Old Testament has to say about Melchizedek. These three verses. That's it. Three verses and then one cross-reference to this in Psalm 110. In one verse. Speaking about the Messiah, and again, we'll get to it in a second. It says, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It says that in Psalm 110. That's it. Got these three verses to talk about Melchizedek. And the writer to the Hebrews just dropped 29 verses on us about Melchizedek. We had three verses in the Old Testament. Almost 10 times more content in the one chapter in Hebrews than is to be found in all of the Old Testament about this person. This is pretty remarkable, actually. So who was Melchizedek? Let's just kind of break it down according to what we do know here in the Old Testament. So let's start with his name. The writer of the Hebrews starts with his name. We should start with his name as well. So Melchizedek is a combination word. 
Melech, which is the Hebrew word for king. Sedek, which is the word for righteousness. So his name means the king of righteousness, as the writer to Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7. Where is Melchizedek from? He's from Salem, which comes from the same root word that we get shalom from, which means peace. The word itself could actually also mean perfect or complete. If you were to blend those together, you could say that Salem means perfect peace or complete peace. That's the idea of what the name of that city means. And so we have this king of righteousness who comes from a place called perfect peace. This is starting to feel like Bunyan's allegory, a program's progress. Next, he blesses Abraham. He comes out. There's this war that happens. There's a victory that's had. They're marching back away from this great victorious battle. This king, who is also a priest, comes out and he brings an offering, if you will, to Abraham, a gift to Abraham, which is not normally how this works. And we see at the end, it goes the other way. And Abraham gives a gift gift to this king priest in just a moment. But this king priest comes out and he brings a gift to Abraham. And it is a gift of all things of bread and wine. We're going to just file that. We're going to come back to that in just a second. It's kind of important that this is what this great king of righteousness, this king of peace, brings to Abraham, the one who the covenant's going to be established with, who's a foreshadow and a forerunner of the ultimate, his seed. We found that out in the covenant declared earlier. Your seed, singular, is the one that's going to bring all this blessing about this great child of miracle, not reference to Isaac, but to this child who will come later. And he brings to him symbolically as the gift of this covenant, A victory, because remember, they just had this great victory over wickedness. He brings to him the symbolic gift of bread and wine. And then after all of that's done, he receives this blessing from Melchizedek. And Abraham gives an offering back to Melchizedek of one-tenth of all the spoils that they just got from the war. He makes, which this is pre-law. In the law, they talk about making the the 10th offering for the worship at the temple, the sacrifices that were to be given so that people could probably worship God through sacrifices. That was what that was about. And before that law was ever established, Abraham did that for this priest king. He gave back to him from the spoils of the victory that he had. So let's file all that away. Flip forward to Psalm 110, if you will. Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, it's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about God giving dominion to the great and future king. This psalm is probably one of the most cited psalms in the New Testament as far as it relates to predictions about the Messiah. About who the Messiah will be, what he'll be like, and so forth. You will recognize a number of these verses from New Testament references. And in beginning in verse 1 of Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There it is, the only other Old Testament reference to Melchizedek. 
found in the most robust messianic psalm that possibly exists. The Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men uh, over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so you have this incredible messianic psalm. And so what's going on here in Psalm 110? First, there's the promise of the Messiah. There is this one who is going to come, who is going to deliver the people from their enemies. And this is what they were leaning on in the New Testament. It's one of the reasons why there was so much great confusion about who the Messiah was supposed to be and what he was supposed to be like. Because almost all of the Messianic Psalms and almost all of the Messianic prophecies reference some great king who will overthrow their enemies. Well, of course, in the first century, you're looking around, your enemy is the Romans. He's going to come and overthrow these people. He's going to destroy these kings and he's going to spill their blood and there's going to be carnage and he's going to give us victory. So there's this promise of a Messiah. And the first thing about the promise that you see is that he's going to be a king. And he's not just going to be a king. He's going to be a king forever, an everlasting king. There will be no end to his dominion. It will last forever. But interestingly enough, not only will there be an eternal kingship for the Messiah, but the Messiah will somehow also be an eternal priest. He'll be a priest that lasts forever. Now, this is incredibly confusing even for the Jewish people throughout the centuries. Because you get priests from Levi... You get kings from Judah. How are we going to have a priest king? They don't come from the same tribe. And Psalm 110 helps. He's going to be a priest. How? According to the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, who blessed Abraham with bread and wine in his victory over the kings in the valley. It's going to be a different kind of priest. Now, just for fun, for just a minute... And I think the writer to the Hebrews is telling us this in Hebrews chapter 7. I think what we have in Genesis chapter 14 is what in classic theological language is known as a Christophany. A pre-appearing of the person of Jesus Christ before the incarnation. I think... And my, as my Old Testament professor used to say, in my humble but most accurate opinion... I think that Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is a pre-incarnate version of Jesus Christ himself. I think Abraham actually had a conversation with Jesus in Genesis chapter 14. I think that's what's going on. And Abraham longed to see my day. And when he saw it. He was glad and he rejoiced. You say, well, that's what the incarnation. Yeah, probably. And it may be Genesis 14. He had just received this fantastic victory. He knew God had blessed him. They had overthrown wickedness. They were getting ready to come back home. There was a lot of uncertainty as what would come next. And this great, mysterious king who was also a priest came out and met them on the road, uh, delivered the verbal blessing of God on Abraham and presented Abraham with bread and with wine, which is not a normative blessing gift for victory In the Old Testament. It's just not. Oil is a typical blessing gift in the Old Testament. Not bread and wine. Bread and wine was an atypical 
gift of victory. Unless you look through it through the lens of the new covenant, which the sharing together of bread and wine around the Lord's table is the greatest demonstration of victory over the enemy and wickedness that we have in existence to this day. The broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ giving ultimate victory over sin and access to God through the gospel. And we have the king of righteousness who comes from the place of peace giving to the victor bread and wine. And declaring to that victor, you did not win this battle on your own. Someone else won this battle for you. And all praise should go to God in heaven because he truly is the victor in this war. This is a remarkable interaction that's going on here in the Old Testament. Now, why does this matter? You say, Philip, this seems just really lofty. This just seems kind of, you know, why does this actually matter? Well, first off, it matters. But before we get to our notes, first off, it matters because God, in his wisdom and in his kindness, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took up pages in the word about it. That's enough for it to matter to us. There really shouldn't be anything that we approach in this book where we where we get to it and we read it and we go, yeah, that's really not that big a deal. We do it all the time, if we're honest with ourselves. We have our favorites and we have the ones that we like to skim through quickly and skip. But God doesn't waste words in the gracious gift of his revelation to us. It is there for a reason and it is for our good and for his glory. And we should lovingly pursue what it is he's trying to say to us in these words that he shared with us. So that's the chief reason why this matters, because it's in God's word. But let's kind of walk through some of the things that are laid out for us here in Hebrews chapter 7 that show to us why this matters. The writer to the Hebrews gives several reasons throughout this discourse on Melchizedek as to why this actually makes a difference. So the first thing is the Old Testament priesthood was temporal. For those in the back, in case you didn't hear it, the Old Testament priesthood was temporal. And I know sometimes people feel like I'm getting on a high horse when I like revisit some of these kinds of things. But this is really important. If you're longing and looking for the reestablishment of a temporal priesthood, you're longing and looking for the wrong thing. The Old Testament priesthood was never meant to be enduring, enduring. It just, it just not, it's not supposed to endure. It was a type. It was a shadow. It was a filler space to point to something greater. The law, as it says here, makes nothing perfect. Chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Was the law good? Yes. Was the law valuable? Yes. Did the law have benefit? Yes. The Apostle Paul says this multiple times in the New Testament. That the Jewish people had a great advantage when they had the law because the law is incredibly beneficial to show us God because it was a revelation from God himself. 
It was a demonstration of who God is and what God's like and what he expected of his people. But the law was never intended to make man righteous. And I know it loses me friends, especially around election season. But people all the time, Philip, how come you don't get in the pulpit and deliver those fiery messages? I hear other preachers delivering when they pass these crazy laws and they and they take away our rights and they do this and they do that. Because it doesn't matter what laws people pass. If God's law will not make you perfect, man's law certainly will not make you perfect. If God's law does not make you righteous, man's law certainly will not make you righteous. Is it important for nations and their laws to reflect the goodness and glory of God. Of course it is. Do any nations ever do that fully and rightly? Of course they don't. The nation of Israel even didn't. And they had the law from God himself. The law does not make you perfect. And so you know what? Do I want them to overturn Roe v. Wade? Of course I do. That's a horrible thing in the books. That we actually have a law that lets you kill children before they're born. It's insane. But you know what I would rather see? I would rather see the gospel so spread through our land that it doesn't matter if Roe v. Wade's on the books because everybody loves Jesus so much that they don't want to kill their kids before they're born. And it just doesn't matter. Because you know what? You can still desire to kill your kids whether it's legal or not. Because the law does not make you perfect. The law does not make you righteous. The gospel and Jesus Christ make you perfect. And righteous. All the law ever did was show men that they were dead. The law never gave life. Ever. And when you go into a booth in November, we would all do well as Christians to remember that. That Jesus will not return on Air Force One. And that the law will not make you righteous and it will not make you perfect and it will not make you holy. And getting the right laws passed by the right people in office will not make the world necessarily a better place. It might might make it appear to be a better place like the Pharisees appeared to be better people. But you can be just as dark and dead in your sin with great and wonderful laws in your land as you can without them. The Old Testament priesthood, my friends, with all of its laws and all of its sacrifices and all of its offerings and all of its restrictions was temporal. It was never meant to last forever. There's a reason God ordained the destruction, thorough destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. He does not intend for it to be built again. You say, Philip, what if it does get built again? I would deem it as a demonstration of the Antichrist if it's built again and not the work of God because there is a temple and his name is Jesus. Second reason why this matters. In the Old Testament, the priesthood and the kingship were separated from each other. You had to have a king, you had to have a priest, you had to have a prophet. Every once in a while, a priest and a prophet might be the same person. Every once in a while, a king and a prophet might be the same person. But you never had priests that were kings and you never had kings that were priests. The kingship and the priesthood were not the same thing. And friends, at the end of the day, that is a weakness in the structure of the Old Testament. It's a weakness. Because what you need is a righteous king 
who can also stand in your stead before God. That's what you need. And the Old Testament never had that. Came really close one time with David when he went into the temple. And he ate the bread that was only for the priest. And God didn't kill him over it. Why? Because he was a type and shadow of the one who was to come after him, but the one who lived long before him, Jesus Christ. Third, why does this matter? Because in the Old Testament, the priests were sinners trying to make offerings for other sinners. This is why there was so much blood in the Old Testament system. So many animals slaughtered. It's why they had to build the funnels that let the blood flow out of the temple in the Old Testament. Why? Because the sinful priest needed to make sacrifice for himself every time before he made sacrifice for somebody else. His life was never righteous enough to stand in the stead of anyone else's life. Writer to the Hebrews declares why this matters to us here in chapter 7. All of these things are pointed out to us. And then what does he do? He talks to us about the order of Melchizedek and the great mystery about that. He talks to us about why this matters. And then he tells us, he answers the question, who is Jesus? Because friends, at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. Is how you answer the question, who is Jesus? And Jesus is a lot more than what I'm about to say to you. But according to Hebrews chapter 7, who is Jesus? Jesus is the priest king. He is the one who is sovereignly in charge. And yet sacrificially a substitute for sinners. This is who he is. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the ending, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and simultaneously the high priest who goes in to make offering for sin, and simultaneously the actual sacrifice for sin, and simultaneously, because he's the King of Kings, the one who takes his life back up again and comes out as the resurrected King and priest and sacrifice. And he everlastingly bears the mark of crucifixion in his body. Because it is part of his glory as the priest king. Not only do I reign and rule over you, but I have laid my life down for you. I have sovereignly ruled you and I have ultimately sacrificed for you. Every spectrum of society that you can imagine. The one who is in control and in charge and the one who dies in your stead. I am all of these things. I am the priest king. It's incredible. It's incredible. But not only is he the priest king, he's a certain kind of king. He is the king of righteousness. According to the order of Melchizedek, that's what that Melchizedek means. It means a king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of righteousness. You say, why does that matter? Why does that matter? I know that we're very glad in America not to have kings. I get it. But we get to vote on leaders in office coming up real soon. 
to show my age, in the old words of MTV, rock the vote. A couple of you chuckled. Most of you have puzzled looks on your face because you're a little bit too old to remember that or way too young to even know what MTV is. They used to play music videos. I think they have reality TV shows now, I think. I don't know. So what is a music video? I know, I'm sorry. Anyway, used to pop the VHS in. Never mind, we're we're getting into the weeds now. So He's the king of righteousness. We're about to vote on some people that are not righteous. It bothers me that the only amen came from a lawyer on the front row. It's a little disturbing. I'm glad for what's going on in Shane's life. I pray for the rest of you. That you were confused that this was a good place to say amen. We're about to vote on a bunch of people that are not righteous. In the last cycle, we voted on people who weren't righteous. And on the next cycle, we're going to vote for people who aren't righteous. And even if you were to have the most upright, godly, clean human being that you know, step in and run for office, they are not righteous. They are broken and they are flawed and they are a sinner. And even if they have come under the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the gospel, they still have that inner man raging war with them because they've not yet been glorified and there's still the internal struggle and there's still the real potential for real dangerous sin to come out of them because the end of all things has not yet come. There has never been on earth a righteous king except Jesus Christ. Not one. And friends, I would like to think living in the culture that we live in Viewing the options in the next six weeks that we have. We would long for someone in governing authority to actually be righteous. Like we could contemplate why that really matters. Someone who is not in it for just themselves and their own benefit and their own party line. But can genuinely look out across the mass of brokenness and say, I have a real solution to what will make you whole and well again. Friend, you're never going to get that in the booth. You should vote. You should vote informed in an informed way. But you're never going to get that in the booth. You're never going to get it. The White House. Or in Congress or on the Supreme Court. Never going to get it in your local magistrate. There's one king of righteousness who every decision that he makes, he makes from a place of perfect flawlessness. And his name's Jesus. It's the only one. How I long for someone who is sovereign and in control and yet sacrificially a substitute for me to be able to look into my broken, shattered, hopeless life and say, Philip, this is the decision you need to make. This is the path you need to walk on. This is the direction you need to follow. This is what you need to do with your life because all the other things you're trying to do with your life will be to your detriment. But I will show you a way that is good and that is pure and that is true and that is holy and it might not be easy but it will be God pleasing and you will be able to rejoice in the midst of it even if you have to face difficult circumstances because I am concerned with your good and I have died for you and I love you and I give you my righteousness that you might be whole before a holy God how I long that someone would be that in my life and he can be his name's Jesus.
the king of righteousness. But not only is he the king of righteousness, Jesus is also the king of perfect peace. The king of perfect peace. I don't even understand what those words mean. Perfect peace. Have you ever experienced that for more than maybe like five minutes in your life at one time? Like really? It, perfect peace. Nobody's mad at anybody. There was no miscommunication. Nobody's frustrated about anything. Nothing bad happened at work. Nothing bad happened at the grocery store. Nothing bad happened in traffic. Software didn't break down. The computer didn't bust up. The toaster didn't burn your toaster. They got your order right at Starbucks. Like, is everybody ever like real perfect peace longingly for more than just a few minutes? I don't. All week when I've been chewing on this, I'm like, he came from Salem, the place of perfect peace. I want to go there like I'd like I'd like I'd like a residence there, please. Is there any. Like even even in the low end of town. (laughs) Some shacks for rent. I'll split a place with somebody and just sleep in the bedroom upstairs. Like, I want to go to the place called perfect peace. That is not the existence that my life lives in. This world and, and me in this world, way too broken. I had, a, I had a dear, dear friend, a mentor a long, long time ago. Told me and a couple of other guys that were pursuing pastoral ministry. And he said, hey, listen, guys, if you ever find a perfect church out there, don't join it. You'll mess it up. Don't go be their pastor. Don't mess up that good thing they've got going. There's nothing perfectly peaceful about our world. Because of the presence of sin, the abiding presence of the enemy, people's longing towards selfishness and greed and backbiting and destruction and envy and striving and all the things that are listed as deeds of the flesh in Galatians. We're never truly and fully at peace with ourselves or with each other. This world itself is not at peace with us. Jonathan Edwards said in his infamous sermon, he said, even the barking of a dog at us is a demonstration that this world is broken. Because we are to have dominion over the things that have been created and the things that created hate us because of our rebellion against God. There's not a moment of peace to be found fully and completely and rightly as we should understand peace in this life. And yet it says that Jesus is the king of perfect peace. And the sinner in me would like to ask Jesus, well, what's wrong with you? I've never gotten that from you before. But that would be blasphemous. It'd be honest, but it'd be blasphemous. The better response should be going the other way around when Jesus is looking at me and my tormented soul and saying, how come you're still not experiencing perfect peace? I am the king of perfect peace and I've come and I've saved your life and I'm giving you all the blessings that I have. Why are you still striving? Why aren't you being still and knowing that I am God? 
Why is it that every wayward circumstance that's slightly outside of your control, that you did not like the way that the outcome is going to look, sends you into a tizzy and to a tailspin, wondering why your whole world is falling apart? This is not what I saved you to. I saved you to joy in spite of your circumstances. I saved you for a peace that surpasses all understanding. I saved you for joy incomparable. Friends, he truly is the king of perfect peace. Why is it we don't experience him that way? Why? Well, it comes to our question this morning, the hard questions that we've been asking at the end of all these sermons. And, And my question to all of us today is, what system... Or tradition, am I trusting in more than Jesus? Because the system and the tradition is going to fail me. It's not going to give me righteousness. It's not going to give me peace. And yet I find myself trusting in the system more than in the person and work of Jesus. You say, Philip, there's no system that I'm trusting in more than the person and work of Jesus. Not per everybody's social media that I read coming up on the election. I mean, seriously, I know I made the joke about Jesus coming Air Force One, but like really that's how it comes off on almost any social media feed that I look right now. What's the catchphrase for both campaigns right now? This election will change the future of America forever. Yeah, that's, they've been saying that for a hundred and some years now. You want to change the future of America forever? Jesus will. Say, Philip, that's trite. No, that's true. If you feel that that statement is small-minded, then maybe you should ask yourself the question that I'm asking myself. What system or tradition am I trusting in more than Jesus? Am I trusting in the situation that I have at my job, the situation I have at my family, the situation I have at my church, the political system, the legal system? What you, you name it. You just identify the system. Am I trusting this system more than I'm trusting Jesus? If you are, you will not attain to righteousness and peace. You'll have a form of godliness, but you'll be denying the power therein. Maybe it's some kind of a tradition that you have. Maybe it's a way of thinking about the world that you feel is necessary and whole. Maybe it's a way of structuring your life that you have so locked in on that it has become a legalistic rigor to you like the life of the Pharisees rather than a joy-giving way of living life that reflects Christ's abundant love in you. There's a lot of things in our world that aren't necessarily bad, that are actually often very good things. Friends, The scripture says it in no uncertain terms. The law is good. Paul said that verbatim. The law is not a bad thing. But the law will not give you righteousness and it certainly will not give you peace. And if you trust the law, good as it is, you will come short of the glory of God. So friends, there's a lot of things in our lives that aren't necessarily bad. They are good things. But they are not Jesus Christ. 
And so I ask you today, as I ask myself, when we contemplate this idea of a better priesthood, when we contemplate Jesus as Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, who is the king of perfect peace, the one who comes and supplies for us this blessing from God of victory of this bread and of this wine, the one who is the promised Messiah to be the eternal king and the eternal priest, the one who is both sovereign over us and sacrifice for us. Friend, what thing in your life are you placing above this better priesthood? What thing are you trusting for your righteousness and your peace that will fail you and come short? Say, Philip, you're making, you're dumbing this thing down way too much. Just, just, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. Like every week we come here, it's just Jesus. Do you have a better answer than it's just Jesus? If you do, you are substituting in something that will fall short. You're trusting in something else other than Jesus Christ himself. He is our only hope in life and death. That's it. So what am I supposed to do? Just look to Jesus? Yes. Say, Philip, that's so remarkably simple that it's almost stupid. Amen, we're sheep, they're dumb animals. God made this easy on purpose. We can't handle the hard stuff. Say, all I need you to do is just follow me. I'm going this way. It's a straight path and it's narrow. Don't step in the grass. Okay. There we go. Can't be any easier than this. I've saved you from a city of destruction. I've given you a robe of righteousness. I've given you a crown on your head. I've clothed you with glory. I've given you eyes to see and ears to hear. Now, what I want you to see is this road and I want you to hear is my voice. Let's go. And how many times do we go wandering off chasing something else that we think is going to be better than Jesus? Friend, the question that the writer of the Hebrews keeps asking in every one of these chapters, what is it that you are trusting in more than Jesus? Whatever that thing is. It is an idol to you and you need to let it go. You got to lay it down. Or if it's something you can't let go because it is a good thing that should be in your life, you need to make sure that it finds its proper place in the economy of God. Say, Philip, what do you mean? So many of us have placed our jobs, our spouses, our children, our church, Our practices of worship, our means of Bible study, lots of things that we can't let go of. They are good and right and permanent things in our lives. But we've placed them above the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. So if you can't let it go, make sure it finds its right place. If you can let it go, throw that thing down. And follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for challenging truths like this one from your word. Things that seem so complex and overwhelming and cryptic. Father, truly are very plain and straightforward. Father, forgive us for all of those things in our lives that we elevate above Jesus Christ. 
All of those things that we look to and we long for and we give greater weight and value to above the person and work of Jesus. Father, forgive us for those times that we trust in everything else for righteousness and everything else for peace except Jesus Christ himself. The only real place of righteousness, the only true giver of peace. Father, help us to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.